Good morning again. What a privilege to be here on what Pastor Doug already said is this beautiful winter morning, I guess, if we have to call it that. But what a privilege it is to come here and to preach God's Word and to hear God's Word read and taught and sung and prayed. That's why we're here, isn't it? So uh, in that spirit, take your copy of God's Word and turn to me, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue to walk through uh, what we're calling the, the Hall of Faith. There's great paragons of, of faith as he's defined faith in chapter 1. The writer has and has given us, he's like a good preacher, good illustrations of what faith is, what saving faith, what enduring, persevering faith is. So this morning we want to deal with verse 7 and look at Noah. One, one character at a time, one mini biography at a time this morning. So Noah, uh, stand in the honor, if you would please, the reading of God's word. Verse, uh, I'm going to begin at verse 1 and read up to verse 7 which is, of course, our text for today. So let us hear now the word of the Lord is inspired by His Holy Spirit. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, or as we've been saying, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. And here's our text for today. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness of that comes by faith. And this is the word of the Lord, and the grass withers, and the flower fades, and eventually it will come back, but it will die again. <laughs> but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. God in heaven, I pray this morning that the, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight. Oh, God, our rock and our redeemer. God, build your church in us that your gates of hell might not overcome it. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So if we had to compile a list, and I love compiling lists, if we compiled a list of the ten most famous people in human history, surely if we thought long enough and hard enough, Noah would make the cut. Noah is, without a doubt, one of the most famous men in human history. Every single one of us, if Scripture's to be believed, and of course we, we believe it is, every one of us is kinfolks of Noah because God basically recreated the world after Noah. He washed it clean in the flood. He brought judgment, poured out his wrath in the flood, and then he started over. And so there's a very real sense in which Noah is our great, 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 great something, right? He's our, he is one of our kinfolks, a famous, famous kinfolk, more famous than Elvis, 
more famous than the Beatles, and they wouldn't like to hear that, but no doubt no it is. And when we talk about when we think about floods, even the Weather Channel will say this is like the flood of Noah. And then they don't admit they don't understand what they've admitted probably, but but they've admitted something deeply theological as we will see. Many of us have seen a replica of the ark at the ark encounter up near Cincinnati. And I remember growing up in, in the 1970s, there was a kind of a trendy thing that explorers would go and try to find the location of Noah's Ark somewhere in Turkey, near Ararat, where the Bible says the, Noah, the Ark came to rest. And there were several who thought they'd found the location of Noah's Ark. And had they? Well, maybe, perhaps. Uh, I think they made a plausible case. And, of course, there was a pilot uh, during World War II flying back from a mission in that area of the world, thought he saw, uh, took some pictures of what he believed was an ark-shaped uh, uh, configuration on top of Mount, uh, on top of the uh, Mount Ararat. Was it? Well, we don't know, uh, but uh, we know and believe that it really exists. And of course, the flood from which Noah was saved is one of the greatest events, the most catastrophic event in human history. Our geography bears the marks of it today all over the world, including the Himalaya Mountains. This is why they find, I believe, this is why they find fish. <laughs> they find you know, artifacts. They find fish in the rocks. These, uh, it, when, when they cut open rocks there, then how did fish get on top of the Himalayas? Well, I think the, they were brought there by floodwaters. Of course, the Grand Canyon. Some believe that was carved by a great flood, and I have no doubt that was probably true, though I don't know, but I, that, that seems plausible to me. So we have to come to grips, don't we, with Noah and his flood. I believe it was worldwide. I mean, there's some who say it was a localized flood, and, and I get that, but I don't, I don't think it was. I think it was worldwide, just like Scripture says. And many religions, most religions throughout human history, uh, attest to the fact that there was a catastrophic flood at some point. And so the earliest history, we have almost all uh, is unanimous in attesting to this. But it was an event brought about by What? The magnitude of human sin. It's how serious God takes righteousness and unrighteousness. Enough to pour out his wrath and destroy the world. It's why my wife laughs at how I ruin, you know, you put together your nursery, right? You're having a child and we go over and visit you for dinner and you have Noah's Ark on the wall, right? You have the animals and they're really cute. And so I love to say, well, you have a picture of God's wrath and God's judgment on your wall. That's wonderful. And so... Uh, so the theological humor doesn't always go over well, but that's what it is, isn't it? It's a picture of God's wrath. He poured out His wrath and destruction of our rebellious race, saving only Noah and Mrs. Noah and their three sons and their wives. Eight people. Now, if that's not a picture of God's election, I don't know what is. Have you ever thought about that? Some of us stumble at the doctrines of predestination and election, and they are difficult doctrines. But think about that. Chew on that for a while, although later, we're not going to focus on that, but God chose eight, put them in the ark, sounds kind of like the church, doesn't it? Saved them and then destroyed everyone else. No one seems to have a problem with that Christian Christianity, but they should if you think you're offended by the doctrine of election, but that's another sermon for another time. And so this morning we're looking at this because Hebrews 11, 7 looks at this, and this, this is the character of the mini-biography we're going to examine this morning. But the events of Noah's life have very important theological significance. The first time we see the words grace and righteousness in the Bible come in the story of Noah. 
and the Noachian flood. Here in Hebrews 11, the writer who put together the, the hall of faith remembers Noah for his profound faith in God. Of course, this is true of all these, all these figures. He was a great and very great significant man. Again, I would argue one of the most important men in human history. Because we're here because God saved him, right? We're his progeny. And yet it was his faith that made him great in God's eyes. Not even the fact that he carried on the human race. But it was his faith. This is why he's mentioned here. Why he's inducted into the hall of faith according to the writer of Hebrews. Noah sums up everything we've learned about faith so far in Hebrews 11. Like Enoch we looked at two weeks ago. He walked with God. And like Abel, he was an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. And as we shall see, so are you if you are in Christ. So we're heirs of Noah in, in more ways than one, for sure. And so the, the story of Noah and the great flood is found in the, from the last verse of Genesis 5 all the way through chapter 9. So let's turn back to Genesis, all the way back to the right to chapter 6. Now I'm not going to read all that, but I do want to read chapter 6 just to kind of get our bearings here where God sends this flood of waters to both as a symbol in a sense of cleansing, which we see in baptism. That's how we Baptists believe in baptism, believers' baptism, baptizing believers by immersion. It's a picture of that cleansing, but also that picture of that judgment which God poured out here through the flood. And while we think that's very, very important. So I'll begin in chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And here's the key. Here's where it kind of begins. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that, now listen to this, every intention of the thoughts of his heart, not just actions, but the intentions of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. Men were totally depraved, and it's always been so. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One man, one man chosen to find favor in the eyes of the Lord based on nothing but God's grace. Continue. Verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt. Now see, here's he's repeating this. The Bible could repeat something. It only has to say something once for it to be true. But when it repeats something, like Jesus saying, Behold, you better listen. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. There it is again. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. 
Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. It's waterproofing. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. The cubit's 18 inches, so to give you some perspective here. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. So like 900 feet long. That's long, long ways. I'm sorry, 450 feet long. There's no UGA math coming out. Sorry. That's still huge, right? Make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower and second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. He makes a covenant with Noah, which is a sacred relationship God sets up with us and guarantees by his word. A covenant. And you shall come into the ark with your son, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. There shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And so now he tells him to go in the ark. They go in the ark. God shuts the door. I love that detail. God shuts them in. And for 40 days and 40 nights it rains and the world is under a deluge. So there's the biography of Noah. God has chosen him out of this cesspool of sin and degradation and depravity that is this world. And we think that, you know, we kind of think that, well, it's only been this bad since the last election or something like that. And that is simply not true. Men have always been, well, always since Genesis 3, totally depraved, utterly, comprehensively sinful. And you see it right here. So there's nothing new under the sun. And so this morning, I want us to see four truths from Hebrews eleven seven. Now, keep this in the back of your mind. Again, this is his biography, and you want to read the rest of it this afternoon. That would be a, a good use of your time on the Lord's Day. But four truths about persevering faith in our text this morning and from Noah's story in Genesis. Now, I see these in the text here uh, this morning, uh, Hebrews eleven seven. And here's the first one. Genuine faith. And this is genuine faith. And we could call this four marks of genuine faith. In fact, we'll just say that. All right? I don't have that in my notes, but... We'll just say that's the Holy Spirit. Four marks of genuine saving faith. And here's the first one. Genuine faith trusts unflinchingly in things unseen. What are we going to see here this morning? Well, you're going to see a man preach the Word, right? But that's nothing spectacular. But I'm preaching an, unknown, an unseen God, right? Right? And that's what the Christian faith is, unseen realities. Being warned, he says here in chapter, back in Hebrews 11, 7, being warned about events unforeseen. Noah is not omniscient and neither are you, neither am I. In reverent fear, constructing an ark for the saving of his household. So Noah believed two things that were unseen. One, he believed God had promised a great flood and it would come. Secondly, he believed God would save his family by the means of an ark. So what did he do? Well, he got busy building an ark. And God gives him very specific instructions, as we just read, as to how it's to be built. Now, no one's ever built an ark in the history of the world, so I would want 
very specific instructions, and so would you, right? And God gives it in His grace and in His mercy. Think about how merciful God is in this. First of all, He's chosen no one saving Him, and now He's said, here, here's a boat, and it won't sink. Build it like this. And so He, has the, he, he demonstrates by His actions faith. So why is this such an act of faith? Isn't He just kind of looking out for his own skin here to, you know, I mean, it's going to flood. Here's a boat. Do you want it? Well, yeah, I want, you want, I want in that boat. You want that boat, right? Why is this such an act of faith? Well, Genesis 6-3 tells us that God spoke these words to Noah. Now, here's a key, here's a key uh, fact. 120 years before the first drop of rain fell. 120 years. None of us is going to live to be 120 years old. If you do... Wow, that's going to be a record probably, right? I don't, I don't know if I want to live 120 years. 120 years before the flood. There's never been a flood like this. Think about it. Never been a flood like the one God told Noah about. And no ship. This ship is the size of a battleship. Like the USS Indianapolis, something like that. Or the USS Alabama which my kids visited a few years ago. We lived in Alabama, down in Mobile. This massive, gigantic, gargantuan ship. There's not even, no, and you have a framework for this, a boat. God didn't create a boat. Never in the history of the world has there been a battleship built like this, or of any kind, or even a paper boat for that matter. And they were nowhere near the ocean or the sea. They're in the desert. This is like being in Phoenix, I teach in Phoenix, Arizona every summer. And let me tell you, it's hot in Phoenix, Arizona. That is the desert. And it's beautiful for about a week for me. But I, I can't imagine a battleship sitting out there. What that way? I mean, that would be a very strange juxtaposition of, of items, right? Nowhere near the sea. Now, that is faith in things unseen. 120 years, the facts of the matter... Noah did not have one shed of proof apart from the Word of God that this was going to happen. I don't think he was just bored. <laughs> I think he trusted God, right? What did he do? He believed, he trusted, he obeyed. Noah's faith in, un, is, in the unseen is faith in God's Word, which is the same thing as saying it is faith in God's promises. You can't see that. God promises you something but you can't see it right the promises we're standing on the promises we sing that and yes it's true but we can't see it is judgment coming well the bible says so and we believe it but we can't see it can we god saved me from my sins and i i can't see it i i feel like i have a new heart but i mean my feelings are sometimes uh they, they can uh, your, your feelings can sometimes mislead you but we believe it right we trust this is what noah did we believe things apart from tangible evidence because God has so informed us and given us His promise. We believe in God Himself and that is faith in things unseen because we cannot see God. Indeed, if we saw Him, we would be vaporized. We wouldn't even live. What about us? What about you? Just right here at the beginning, what about you? What about your faith? What God demanded of Noah was far greater than anything He's probably ever going to ask us to believe, right? Think about it. God required Noah to believe something that had never happened before. No category for these things. In the middle of the desert, rain, a boat, we're going to need that. Yeah, right. Something totally unprecedented and highly unlikely. Right? If someone knocked on your door and said, you need to build a boat in your 
driveway today. You tell them, you think, crazy. God told me to tell you. I've met people who say things like that, you know, and you think, what do we think? This guy's a nut. And he probably is. But God, God said it to Noah. I mean, from purely human perspective, this looks, um, this looks unlikely, to say the least. Noah's faith should convict us. Why? Because God asks comparatively little of us. He asks us to believe things that have already happened. We're to trust in something that already happened. It's verifiable in the history books. And yet our faith is small. It's the size of a mustard seed. And we distrust God all the time, right? We, we rebel against His sovereignty. We doubt. We, we have, I know I have problems with uh, you know, all kinds of discontentment. That's why we're studying in small groups contentment because I'm a very discontented person. You know, we, we, we don't have enough money in the bank or what, how much we like or we don't like the circumstances of our life or we hate our job and we think God has just done something terrible to us, right? You know, He's sovereign. He's Lord as we, Clay, Pastor Clay taught in Sunday school this morning, meticulously sovereign over all things and yet we don't believe Him. We're called to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's already happened. It's verifiable by history. It was not done in a corner. We have a testimony in the book. Things that were done in the full light of history and yet we doubt. So Noah's faith rebukes our mustard seed faith, which Jesus said moves mountains, right? And he says that because your faith, our faith is so small, so often. I mean, God promised Noah to save his family from the flood of his wrath through a boat he would build is difficult to imagine. Certainly must have been for Noah. But God promises us something he has done countless times before, to save us from our sins, probably in the lives of people we know personally. You've seen people's lives are transformed, right? Because they've trusted Christ. So this is not that big of a stretch for us, or it should not be, in light of Noah and his faith. He promises to forgive our sins through Jesus Christ, to give us his spirit, to lead us into a new life. I mean, some promises remain for the future, of course, such as the resurrection of the dead. But like Noah, we are saved by believing in things not seen. And we only please God by trusting in those things, by believing His Word and trusting in His promises. Charles Spurgeon wrote a, a wonderful book called Promises Checkbook. In other words, you write checks in your life based on God's promises, right? And those checks will always be cashed because God is good for that money, right? He's, he has all that money in His account. You can write a check on God's promises, Spurgeon said. And I love that word picture. Noah believed that. Do you? Do I? When life hits the fan, and it does, I mean, I complain about winter. I've complained bitterly this morning about winter, right? This is awful. And then our friend Matthew Quick this morning showed me the snow in Wisconsin, and I felt a lot better about the snow in Louisville, this little thing dusting out here that I'm just mad that ice is on my driveway. And it makes me depressed and a little anxious. Why? I mean, Noah had to build a boat. All I'm asking is to get through the next, like, 10 days, and it'll be you know, spring or something. Our faith is so small, isn't it? We don't trust God like we should. Well, somebody said, well, this must be a sign of works righteousness. And Noah, he, he worked. And I mean, God, you know, he did his thing and God did his thing. That's the way that salvation works for you Christians. Because Scripture describes Noah how? As a blameless man. Blameless. And so many people would argue he was justified or that he pleased God by his works. I mean, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Of course he did. He's a good man. He, was, he, he kept the law perfectly or something like that. He was blameless. 
But it isn't that he was blameless and thereby found grace with God, but that his blamelessness was a result of God's favor. His blamelessness came by grace. Just like your blamelessness before God in Christ is by grace alone. And we cherish that doctrine here at this church, don't we? Because it has saved us, that unseen God, those unseen promises, which we know are fulfilled in Christ. God's grace was the source of Noah's faith, which in turn was a motivating factor behind his works. And so everything is by faith here in, here in Hebrews 11, 7 and Hebrews 11, which brings me to my second point of faith. The second mark of, of genuine faith is this. Genuine faith always leads to confirming works. And what I mean by that is simply this. The genuine faith, which is unseen, is seen, is evidenced by works that we can see. The fact that you're sitting here today, and I assume you want to hear the word preached, maybe not all of you, but you want to hear the word preached, then that is some evidence at least of genuine faith. Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Christians and non-Christians and alike are often confused, I think, about the relationship between faith and works. Paul says in Romans 4, 6, we are declared righteous in Christ apart from works. So we're declared righteous when we trust in Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith in Him, even faith that's a gift, apart from works. So those people who show up at your door on Saturday morning peddling the literature as a way to, you know, to put another, another merit by their name, another mark by their name, and they treasure up enough merits they might get into heaven, those people, they're wasting their time. They're just they're just, making the feather, they're just making their path to hell a feather bed. That's really all they're doing. Nice life here, moral life here, hell for all eternity. Because I'm working my way to heaven. Roman Catholicism. Sometimes misunderstood. So what's all about works? No, it's faith plus works. And faith plus works equals eternal condemnation. We've got to be clear. But faith that's real, faith that's true, works. Because on the other hand, James 2.17 says, faith by itself, if it does not works, is dead. Have works is dead. In James 18, 2, 2, 18, he says, James continues, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, this is what's going on in Noah. He's showing us, the history books, his faith. Why and how? Well, because he built a boat in the desert 120 years before the project was due, right? That in itself is a miracle. <laughs> 120 years, that's a long time. Let's, let's sleep for a few months and then we'll get, we'll get after that eventually. No, Noah did it, right? Because genuine faith leads to works. What appears to be a contradiction has made some people choose either faith or works. A religion that's works usually because we like to have boxes we can check and merits in our account, deposited ourselves into our account. John Calvin in his commentary on James, put it this way. This is my favorite. This is my my favorite, uh, my favorite uh, summary of faith and works. The relationship between the two. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never, 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 never alone. This is not some kind of bald fideism, a leaf in the dark, and we're saved. I mean, the world thinks that about Christianity, and that is a, a misunderstanding of what we believe, isn't it? What the Bible teaches. 
Calvin said, we are saved by faith alone. Faith is never alone. True and saving faith is always, always accompanied by obedience, which flows from faith like water from a fountain. You've been made new. The fountain is being purified, and what flows from that pure fountain is pure water. Not perfect water, but it's being purified. You're being made like Jesus daily, and that shows up in your life. And if it doesn't, then you have every reason to question the authenticity, the genuineness of your faith. You know, there's going to be people in hell who love good theology, who love sound doctrine, who love big God theology, who love Reformed theology that we love and prize and teach at this church. So, man, I love the Reformed tradition. The problem is they didn't love Jesus. And the Jesus that the Reformed is at the center, the heart of the Reformed tradition. And it's Baptistic expression and Presbyterian, all the expressions of it. What flowed from the fountain of Noah's faith? Well, two things, reverent fear. Noah had reverence for God, which secondly led to his attentive care to the details of what God commanded, building the boat exactly as God specified. We see this in how Noah carried out these, these detailed instructions, don't we? Every bit of it. Genesis 6.22 said, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. Every bit of it. Apparently without hesitation. Seldom in the history of Christianity have there been Christians like Noah, right? My favorite, the, to me the best, or the closest expression to with the faith of the quality of Noah are the Puritans of the 17th and 18th century. You know, I love them. You know, we couldn't get through this without me talking about the Puritans, right? It's just either the Puritans or Spurgeon. just have to predict where it's going to come. But in England and America, 17th, 18th century, probably the most like Noah, I think, of any group because of their... Standing on God's promises. They, they didn't have much choice. The, the, the way the world was, the environment they lived in, they, didn't have, they were very low-tech <laughs> in those days. About four out of six or four out of ten mothers who had children died in childbirth, and the children usually died as well. Death was all around them, and yet they trusted God. Of course, the Puritans today are scorned because they gave such reverent attentiveness to the things of God. They're seen as narrow-minded or stupid or, or they're just not modern but they were very scrupulous in how they kept God's word, how they lived the godly life day in and day out. And they lived it in full humility. These were not arrogant people. These were humble people. They trusted God. And it led to a lifestyle of obedience, a lifestyle of purity. They were always seeking holiness, which you're going to see later in Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. Faith leads to works. This is why James 1.25 calls, uh, people say, well, that's legalism. They're trying to earn their way. No, no, no. James 1.25 calls it the law of liberty. We're set free by God's grace to keep the law, to delight in the law, to pursue holiness. And I would argue if you're not pursuing holiness, you need to repent or come to Jesus. Maybe you've not come to Jesus. Or maybe you've just gotten off the path, you know, and you need to, uh, you need to, to ask God to, to put you back on the path. I mean, studying God's Word, obeying it, will not shrink you. People say, that makes you really narrow-minded. No, no, it won't shrink you. It will expand you. It will make you grow. Nothing in my life, my, especially the last 25 or so years, has grown me and matured me as a Christian, increased my faith like reading the Word of God. Very simply reading, meditating daily on the Word of God, the promises and standing on them. And yet the path of obedience to Christ is narrow, it's, it's a path that keeps us in the ark and out of the flood, but it's narrow. 
Remember Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, we've looked at this before in the context of Hebrews, For the gate is broad, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and many there be that find it. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Few. Explains why there are cars passing out here. They're not interested in church, right? Of course, church doesn't save you being in church. They're not interested in worshiping our God. They're interested in the things of God. They're interested in their soul. Because God hasn't worked in them. And they're on the broad path. And we pray for them. We evangelize them, but they're on the broad path. And we're not surprised that because many there be that find it, he says. This is the way Noah lived. And his manner of living arose out of his faith. What was the evidence of the works that arose from his faith? Well, the ark. I mean, not a single raindrop had fallen or would fall for decades, and yet Noah built the ark because God told him to. In faith, he built the ark because of his faith. I mean, we would procrastinate, wouldn't we? If you told one of your students you have a paper due in 120 years, well, 119 years, 364 days, and 12 hours have passed before they started the research, right? So, oh, man, we got time. I almost forgot about that paper, right? I know this because I was a student for a long time, and now I have students, and so I know how this works. Noah surely was tempted, you know, but we have no, no evidence he even procrastinated. He set about building the ark. That's a big boat. It's going to take a long time. Without instructions, it would take a lot longer than 120 years, wouldn't it? But what would we think if Noah hadn't built the ark? What if he'd said, I, I, I believe God's word, but I mean, I'm not going to build a boat. I mean, come on, that's kind of, I mean, I want to be saved, but I mean, that's kind of silly. Come on. Well, we'd say faith without works is dead. That would be our conclusion about Noah, wouldn't it? Because works cannot be separated from genuine faith. This is true for us. I mean, we live in accord with what we believe. If I said, I believe there's a bomb in this building right now, would you sit for the rest of this sermon or would I preach the rest of the sermon? Oh, you'd probably get up and flee. You'd run for your life. You'd trample one another out, right? Because that's what you believe. We live in accord with what we believe. Do you have real faith? Does it show in the full court press of everyday life? When life hits the fan, what do you trust in? Where's your hope? It took Noah 120 years to build the ark. That's incredible. That's perseverance. And it will take many years of you and I walking with God daily to be matured, to put sin to death. I grow to hate sin and to hate unrighteousness and love righteousness. And even in the end, we won't be perfect. There will be no perfection until heaven. Yes, we're positionally perfect, right? But we're not in terms of how we live the Christian life. We're being perfected, but we're not yet perfect. Not until glory. We must make war daily uh, against the, the flesh, the spirit and the flesh, and, and war within us that will continue till, till glory. As the old song says, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Third mark of genuine faith. Genuine faith condemns the world's wickedness. Verse 7c. This first phrase in the, the final sentence of 11.7 provides a stark contrast between faith and unbelief. This is so prevalent in the world today and has always been prevalent. By this, by faith, he condemned the world. Both, both literally and figuratively. Ray Stedman, a commentator, said this. said, we may rightly visualize the mockery and jeering which Noah must have daily faced as he built a huge ship. Had he lived in our day, he would have lived 
had lived in our day, he would have been dubbed Nutty Noah. We'd say he's a nut, and I would have said that, and you would have too. He says, yet Jesus used the days of Noah as representative of the condition of the world before his own return and indicated that his followers must be prepared to face the same kind of scornful hostility that Noah met day after day. Noah's life proclaimed judgment on the lives of those who were rejecting the promises of God. They weren't standing on the promises, they were standing on their own strength. 2 Peter 2.5, if he did not, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, New Testament, New Testament writers, by the way, including Jesus, lead to Noah, so I think we, we have to believe the, the story of Noah as it's presented here. If the, he did not spare the ancient world, God, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he calls him a herald of righteousness. He was a preacher. His life preached and no doubt he preached. Repent and flee from the wrath to come. Noah's calling was to warn the people of his time that God was soon going to pour out his wrath and judgment because of their wickedness and unbelief. Noah was a prophet in a very real sense, both in the way he lived his life, the life of faith, and in his proclamation of the promises of God. They had the same opportunity to know God and His will as Noah had. The difference was not a difference in the amount of light, but in the response to it. Noah trusted God. The people watched Noah build the ark. Can you imagine them building? It's like the, you know, one of my favorite movies, The Field of Dreams. He goes out there and plows under his corn and puts a baseball field there, which I think is a glorious use of a cornfield. Uh, but uh, everybody thought he was crazy. Well, this is exponentially more nutty, isn't it? It's building a boat in the desert. Nutty Noah. But they had an opportunity, didn't they? To trust God. They watched him build it over 120 years. This had to be a dramatic warning of the coming flood of, God, of God's judgment, which Noah witnessed, Noah witnessed to the people. First Peter 3.20, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. God's being patient. Every board that he nails, every time he puts pitch on the side, this tar that waterproofs it, it's God's mercy. Come. The wrath of God is coming. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, this one more day, this one more hearing the gospel, this one more opportunity to see the gospel as pictured in the Lord's Supper, it's God's mercy. And yet it's also a warning that there is coming a day when God will judge the earth finally and fully. Flee to Him today. That's the message. Come, come, just as it was in the days of Noah. The people had no excuse for their sin. They had, they had the light of nature. They could look and see there was a creator with whom they had to do. Romans 1 tells us that. They had no excuse. People lived to be a thousand years old back then or thereabouts. 120 years of Noah preaching, repent, repent. Board by board, animal by animal, day by day, week by week, year by year. Repent and be reconciled to God. Flee from the wrath to come. Against the wicked, cruel, dark world, Noah's life and testimony shine in glistening condemnation of his culture's wickedness. And so should your life. Again, not that you're self-righteous and you are condemning and judgmental. I'm not saying we need to be that way and pugnacious and combative about it. No, no, no. It's just the way we live our lives. It's a rebuke to the world. Like a diamond that shines most darkly, most brightly against a, a dark background. A young man of Athens told Socrates, I hate you because every time I meet you, you show me what I am. Do people say that about you? Do they say, every time I'm around him, it just reminds me, it shows me what I am. 
Because little has changed from Noah's day to our present day. We're still utterly depraved. We're still uh, rebelling against God with almost every breath we breathe, aren't we? We see that in the news. Every time we turn on the news and every time we read the, the newspaper, it's still a thing. Read it on the line. But we read it, we know that the streets declare the sinfulness of man. It hasn't changed. People's attitudes have not changed toward God. They don't fear God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And it won't change until the Lord returns. Matthew 24, Jesus said this, 37 to 39. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. That is frightening, beloved. They watched him build the ark day by day. They were marrying, giving him air, drinking, eating and drinking. We're Baptists. We do a lot of eating. We do a lot of drinking of, you know, non-alcoholic things and stuff. But we drink, we eat, we marry, give in marriage. I've done a lot of weddings, a lot of funerals. We live and we die and we go to church and we do our thing, right? And that was what was happening in those days. And that they ignored the warning. They did not understand until the door was closed. When the door was closed, it was too late. God was going to bring down the curtain on primeval, what we call primeval history up to that point. He's going to wash it all away. But there's coming a day, which I've called here many times payday Sunday. There's coming a day when God will finally and fully judge the earth, not by flood. He made a promise, right? Put the rainbow as a promise, made a covenant. No, he'd never destroy the earth by flood, but this time by fire. And this time there will be no starting over except for those who are in Christ. It'll be full, finally and full, and, and it will be over. John MacArthur points out, the parallels of Noah's day to our own are sobering. In Noah's day, God's message was rejected as, as it is today. In his day, a remnant found grace just as a remnant believes today. Or as Billy Graham used to say, and I heard him say this many, many times, I'm sure other men have said this, if God doesn't destroy our world, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of our country today and the legal, what we've been legalizing since 1973. Our schools, our public schools officially teach there is no God. And you have, you have a picture, you have an idea of why we believe that and why Dr. Graham said he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's coming again. By fire, not by flood, and there will be no second chance this time. It will be final. Where will you be? That brings me to my fourth and final as we begin to think about the Lord's Supper, especially on this point. I want you to begin to meditate and, and think about your own life and where you are. Are you pursuing holiness? Is there sin in your life that's unrepented? Are, are there sins that you're petting that you're, you've got in a secret compartment that no one knows about? Maybe God does. We've seen that in the, the revelations of a, a well-known Christian teacher this, just this week who died. One of my heroes, he died a year ago, and, or almost two years ago, a year and a half ago. Now we see his life is unraveling post-mortem to deep depravity. He was involved in it. It was a secret we would never have guessed. And that's how easily sin hides in us. I want you to think about this. We come to the supper today which is a picture of God's mercy and God's wrath, both cleansing and, 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 and judgment, just like the days of Noah. So here's my, everyone who has faith of Noah, 
like Noah has an ark of safety, and that's my final point, the final mark of genuine faith is it inherits the righteousness of Christ. Genuine faith inherits the righteousness of Christ. By this, he became an, by faith, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was the first person in the Bible to be called righteous. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then Genesis 7, 1, which you didn't read this morning. But then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I will have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Was he righteous because he was a sinless man? No. Because what does he do right after he gets off the boat? He gets drunk. Apparently he didn't like quarantine either. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that. So he got drunk. He was a sinner, but he was justified, made righteous by the faith and the promises of God. Just like you, except we're looking back at the promises that have already been fulfilled. The Messiah, right? Promise in the Old Testament, fulfill in the New. You are righteous before me in this generation. Noah trusted God and was saved from the flood. Of course, he was saved spiritually. God had made a covenant, spiritual covenant. That's a spiritual act with Noah. That's not just a physical act, but a spiritual act, deeply spiritual implications. We see that in our covenant theology. This righteousness is reality, of course, for all who believe in Christ. Not always in practice, no, but always in position. When you come to Jesus, you have an ark of safety, and you are declared righteous by position. No, not in practice. Maybe increasingly so in practice if, if you're pursuing holiness, but always in position. You're declared not guilty for trusting in the ark of safety, Jesus Christ, to protect you from the flood of judgment that is to come. And it's by grace alone. Genuine faith inherits the righteousness of Christ. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God, Paul calls it, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Well, I thought you said that this is a picture of God's election. It should say all whom God has chosen. No, it says all who believe. That, that's a secret act of God, right? We don't know the identity. We, we just assume it's for all who believe. The promise is all who believe. Theoretically, could others have joined Noah on the boat? Yeah, theoretically. Yeah. I'm sure there's a big boat. <laughs> a lot of animals on there. A lot of mess, I imagine. But only eight, only eight. And God chose him, but he preached to them, and they had a chance, didn't they? And so do you. But will this be your last chance? Will God come back before the snowstorm tonight? Will Jesus come back? Will he come in judgment? And where will you be then? Because if you're in Christ, the Father sees us as he sees the Son. Holy and righteous, because by faith we are in His Son. Remember in Ephesians, that little phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, that little prepositional phrase that I delight in, grammarians everywhere delight in, right? In Christ. There's a, all of eternity is in that little prepositional phrase. In Christ, you're either in Christ or outside of Christ. You're either in the ark or you're outside the ark. And in God's judgment comes, that's it. That's the situation you will find your self in and God sees you as righteous we put on glasses that are lenses of a certain color if I were to put on red glasses which I would find glorious of course uh, then everything would be red that's how God sees us he looks at you through the lens of his son and he sees us as he sees his son which is to say he sees you as righteous 
righteous. Because his son won righteousness through his sinless life and paid the penalty for your sins by his death on Calvary's tree. Thousands of years before Jesus Christ became incarnate, though, God looked at Noah and saw the son and Noah believed. He saw Noah in Christ. Noah was standing on the promises of the Messiah who would come, who was pictured in the very act of building the boat. Think of the wood and the cross, and there's just so much significance here we can unpack, right? Wooden boat, wooden cross, that's not an accident, friends. The details in the Bible are incredible. Every word inspired by the Spirit and every word for us today. Are you in Christ today? As we transition to the meal, servers, you can get ready to, well, we don't need servers. We have, we serve ourselves. I forgot. Sorry. Soon we'll have servers, I hope. Are you ready to be like Noah? In our modern culture that increasingly hates God? I mean, like Noah, Christians will be seen as fools in the eyes of the world. No doubt, you're, going to be, you're seen by fools, maybe by your relatives, maybe by your spouse, your children, your parents, your co-workers. Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, We are fools for Christ's sake. Who can take this meal? Those who are fools for Christ's sake. Think about the thing you love most, your spouse, your children. You're willing to become a fool for them, Right? Think of the old song, I'm a fool for your loving. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of right. <laughs> right. Become a fool for what you love. But are you a fool for Christ's sake? Who can take this meal? People who, are, who have lived a sinless life since the last time we took the meal? No. People who are in Christ. People who are not living in open, unrepentant sin. If you're living in open, unrepentant sin, this meal is not for you today. Repent and come back and take it next time. If you're outside Christ and you're outside the ark, this meal is not for you. This meal is for believers who've been baptized, who are who are, have been baptized as believers, like precious faith of ours and good standing of their local church. If that's you, you're welcome to take this meal with us, and please do. Because it pictures that ark of safety we have in Christ. But are we fools for Christ's sake? I mean, Noah, nutty Noah. Are you willing to be nutty Noah? Or are you kind of shrinking back and saying, you know? It's going to be hard to be a Christian in the future years in America, and I think it will. So I need to be, I need to lay low. I need to have a low profile. When my, now, I'm not asking you to be, I'm not saying you to be a fool in the sense that you just offend everybody because you're such a, a combative Christian. We don't need more combative Christians. Always be ready to give an account for the, the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, or meekness and fear, right? It's the two. We all we love the defending of the faith, but we sometimes forget the meekness and fear part. Noah, no doubt, was humble, a fool for Christ's sake. Are you convinced that the judgment is coming? Or do you think I just have to say that because that's what preachers say to get people to give to the church and to come back next week? And it's just a scare tactic, preacher. You know, Jonathan Edwards, that sinner is in the hand of an angry God. That's just a scare tactic. I grew up in a church where I heard hell preached like twice every Sunday. And yes, maybe that was excessive because, in terms of focus, <laughs> there's a lot more in the Bible than judgment. But I think the, I think the preacher. I think the preacher believed in judgment. And I think he wanted to warn us of the judgment to come. Out of balance? Sure. 
But I'd rather be able to balance that with than to say they're, they're, this is just uh, a product of a non-technical age, an agrarian age. They were, they were stupid. They, did, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. Do you believe judgment is coming? That heaven or hell is coming? Because God has promised it will be so. Do you trust in His Word? Are you standing on the promises of God? If you are, then this, this meal is for you. I didn't say perfectly. I didn't say, do you have doubts sometimes? We all do, right? I mean, look at Job. Read through Job right now. Read through the Bible. Man, he, Job, Job was ready to swap licks with God. And of course, that wouldn't have turned out too good for Job, but wow. And God knows we're creatures of dust. We're frail, right? That's not, that's not the question. Are you convinced the judgment is coming? The flood of God's judgment is nowhere to be seen. Was nowhere to be seen when God first spoke to Noah. It looks like it's just going to snow today, right? Yet in reverent response, he built the ark. And the unbelieving world is condemned for being preoccupied with the present and not the eternal. Are you overly occupied with this present world? From here on out in Hebrews, we're going to see a lot about the invisible kingdom, right? What Augustine called the city of God that you've heard me talk about many times in this sermon series. Are you just preoccupied with the city of man? So I got to pay the rent, I got to pay the mortgage. Preacher, you don't understand. That's a bunch of good preacher talk, but I, I live in the real world. Well, the Christian faith is faith for a real world, and Noah proves that, doesn't he not? You think Noah lived in a real world? You better believe it. This is a gritty faith. I, I don't like wimpy Christianity because I don't think the Christianity of the Bible is wimpy or for wimpy people. <laughs> it's for those God whom God has made gritty and they understand that this is. This is the medicine we need for the full court press of everyday life. And everyday life is going to be nasty and messy in a fallen world. And so God's calling us to be gritty and persevere in the faith. And he will give the grace. We can't just conjure up grittiness, right? That's not what I'm saying. This is not a tough guy Christianity. That's not Christianity either. That's not what I mean. But are we too preoccupied with this present world? And have we, have we thought about the world to come? What are you trusting for your future? Have you fled? And I ask it again. Have you fled to the ark of safety that is the cross of Jesus Christ to be your shelter when the future final flood of judgment comes? Will you be clothed in the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ? Let me pray and we'll take the elements together at my signifying. God in heaven, we thank you for Noah. I pray we would see the rebuke that his testimony stoutly issues forth for us that we are a people of little faith. God, have mercy on us. Increase our faith. Strengthen our faith. Even as we take this supper today, Lord, as we look back on, and I, the key is looking back on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as an accomplished fact for our sake. I pray that you would nourish us and strengthen us and instill in that, in that grittiness in us that we don't have but so desperately need to live in a, such a way as to be faithful witnesses in this world, in this day, in this evil age for your glory. Help us to be willing to be seen, as Paul put it, the, the scum of the earth, the refuse of society because we are going, we have entered the ark of safety that is found in Christ alone. Nourish us afresh. Strengthen us today, God. Give us grace. 
for every challenge we face this week and the week ahead through the gospel that this supper pictures. And we praise you that you've turned aside your wrath that should have been poured out upon us, was poured out on Jesus instead at Calvary. That rain came down on him. And for all of us who are in him, he bore us up. We thank you, Father, and praise you for such a great salvation. And nourish us afresh spiritually through, through this meal. In Jesus' name, amen.